So we're going to start with Romans 4, and it really fits with the song that Stephen led, uh, Faith of Our Fathers. Really what this lesson is going to be, this is going to be a lesson that can be a cornerstone to push us into the rest of the lessons. Every, every lesson is going to relate back to this. Um, and so this is just going to be an important lesson to, uh, to take in and understand. And we're really going to be defining faith in Romans 4. Uh, it's, it's a passage where faith is very explicitly defined and described in Romans 4. And before we start reading anything in Romans 4, I just really want to point out how uh, difficult a concept faith really is. I think it's easy to take that for granted because it's so clear, in a sense, in the New Testament. Uh, But in the Old Testament, um, the word for faith is used 48 times in the Old Testament. Uh, And just like think to yourself, like how many times you think it's used in our faith in God. You know, kind of like how faith saves, we're saved by faith through grace. Used like that, how how often you might think it's used. Uh, It's actually only used once like that in the entire Old Testament. So you've got this huge body of writing, and in that whole body, one verse, one verse actually talks about our faith in God, just one. And that's Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. That's it. Uh, in the New Testament, it is 247 times that the word faith is, is used. 247. And of those 247 uses, 245 of those uses are talking about our faith in God. So something shifted really dramatically <laughs> between the Old Testament and the New Testament on this concept of faith. But you have to think God for thousands of years was acting and relating himself to men and working with Israel. But the whole time what he was doing was he was slowly revealing what our relationship with him really is and what it's based on so that when Christ could come, that this concept could be made perfectly evident to us and we could perfectly understand how it is that we really cultivate this relationship with God that that brings us and binds us into into fellowship with him. So Romans 4 is a really important chapter uh, because faith is, again, it's, it's really defined and described in this chapter. And I found personally that it seems like Romans 4 is not really looked at oftentimes in a way consistent with what it really is. Um, I think we can understand Romans 4 without having to qualify it with James 2, for instance, right? So I think a trap I've gotten into with Romans 4 is I'll read it and the language will kind of make me uncomfortable. And so I'll think like, well, I I know what it seems like this is saying, but James 2, you know, faith without works is dead. So we have to have, you know, obedience and and works. Um, But I want to try to encourage you to think that we can actually understand Romans 4 using its own language in a way that conveys those things in the language of the text, right? And so I think that's what we're going to find out. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, and I'm just going to make some very brief introductory remarks. And really verse 16 through the end of the chapter, 16 through 25, that's where we're going to be trying to spend the most time. So I'm just going to read verse 1 through 15 and and just make some uh, brief points from that. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin have been covered, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the, on, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. All right, so one of the first things to point out is verse 3. This whole chapter is really an exposition, an explanation of one verse from the Old Testament. Uh, does anybody know where verse 3 is taken from? You may have like a notation, a reference. Where is verse 3 quoting from in the Old Testament? Yes. Does anybody know what was going on in Genesis 15, verse 6, that led into that verse in that, in that context? What was happening before that and around that? I know somebody knows. It was a little bit after that. So it's when Abraham had uh, come into Canaan and God had been progressively, Genesis 12 is when uh, Abraham leaves uh, the, the, the land of the Chaldeans and, and comes uh, journeys to, toward Canaan. But in Genesis 15 specifically, God had assured Abraham that one from his own body would be his heir. And he takes Abraham out and shows him all the stars of the sky and says, just so shall your descendants be. He says, oh, Lord, you know, how, you know, how will this even happen? How will I know this, you know, since I'm a man uh, well advanced in, in years? Um, and he mentions that one from his own body would be his heir. Uh, and so he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so this, this whole chapter is an exposition of that one verse. Genesis and really the Old Testament in general, but especially Genesis, kind of has like these Easter egg things that God kind of dropped in to come back to later in the New Testament. Like Hebrews 7 is kind of like that as well with the interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to be something really all that significant when it happens in Genesis 14. But then the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 7 returns back to that and makes just astonishing connections to Jesus and how Jesus inherited Melchizedek's priesthood. Just some, just some interesting things that you see in Genesis that are returned to and, and detailed in the New Testament. It's very amazing. But verse 1, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? Really, one of the main points of this chapter is he, according to the flesh, Abraham found nothing. He didn't find anything according to the flesh. And in verse 2, this, this is a sentence that I think can read in kind of a confusing way. You know, it says, Abraham, if you justified by works, is something to boast about, but not for God. It's like, well, what, what is that? saying? What does that even mean? And we're going to see this as we progress a little bit further, that 
I think the idea is if Abraham was justified by works, he could only feel assured of that. He could only boast in that if he did not see God or perceive God. But as we perceive God, as we recognize who God is, the greatness of God and his power, and really our lack of power and glory in relation to God, we'll realize that there is no ability we have to boast in anything that we do when we perceive God. And to be content with works or satisfied with works really demonstrates a lack of comprehension of who the person of God really is. So a couple more things through the rest of this context. How circumcision and the law brilliantly point to faith. This may not make sense, so this may not like be worth bringing up. But does anybody know what antithesis means? Antithesis? Kind of a weird word. Complete opposite, yes. So a really great way to teach lessons is using the principle of antithesis. So, like, if you want to talk to somebody about what darkness is, complete darkness, you could maybe use, like, light and just try to describe, well, you know, if, if you have light, it's the complete absence of light. Or you want to describe something really cold to somebody who only knows things that are hot, you just say, well, it's kind of like the opposite of something that's hot. It's the absence of heat. And there's a lot of lessons that you can teach using antithesis because, really, things that are opposites in some strange ways are actually connected to each other being opposites. So I want to suggest that some of the things that are being pointed out in this beginning section of Romans 4 is that the law and faith are actually opposites to each other. But it's brilliant because the law and faith in some strange way are actually connected. And there's two ways I think that's accomplished. One, circumcision. When somebody would would be circumcised, what was the purpose of circumcision? Why would anyone be circumcised under the law? To, of course, the person being circumcised was eight days old. Right. It was obedience to that law and to that covenant. Right. As a recognition of the covenant. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. uh, You know, that's. It wasn't by uh, an understanding of the one that received the circumcision. Right. So somebody would usually be circumcised when they were born, right? And they had no comprehension of what they were doing. There wasn't a choice they were making. I think one of the brilliant ways that that would uh, bring someone to faith ideally, ideally, somebody's born into Israel, they're circumcised, they have no idea, you know, that they're entering into the covenant, but God obligated himself like a slave to anyone of the circumcision. So somebody being circumcised receives all the blessings of Israel, all the promises of Israel, all the benefits of Israel. And as they would get older, they could begin to recognize they've received all of those things, not because of their works, but because of one guy who had faith maybe thousands of years before they ever lived. And here they are receiving all the blessings and promises and the glory of God in an unwarranted and unjustified way. And God has enslaved himself to them to give them life and hope for no reason other than Abraham, right? And so ideally, ideally, that would extraordinarily humble someone to recognize that God's grace and mercy were the basis of the covenant, ideally, right? I think the second way that the law is the antithesis of of faith. Romans 7 talks about how God, who is the giver of life, you know, him giving the law, the law could give life if you never broke it. 
But if you broke the law at all, any violation at all, what, what was the consequence of violating the law? You had sacrifices to give. You had right. Bills to pay. Exactly. There was death. The consequence, the wages of sin is death, right? So if God who gives the law is the giver of life and is capable of giving life, right? But I violate the law and the result is death. And I recognize that that death came from me. I recognize that death is something that I'm responsible for. I'm guilty of death. But God is a giver of life. And so the way that I return to God then is his willingness to bring life through my death by means of promise, not by my works, right? So ideally, again, ideally, the law, if somebody was paying attention in humility, was designed to lead people to have faith. The very faith we're going to read about in this context. So for the sake of time, let's go into 16 through 25, and I'll tell you what we're really looking for. Verse 12, I think, is one of the most important verses in this entire chapter, um, and we're dealing with faith. I think it's one of the most important verses dealing with faith. Does everybody's translation say something like, to those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham? Does everybody's translation say something like that? I don't know if you, if you write in your Bible, like that's a verse to like highlight or underline or mark in some way. Because most of you, I think, have heard about like the plan of salvation, the steps of salvation, right? Like hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized, and like live faithfully, Right. There's no place, and I, I, that's right, that's, that's all correct, right? But there's no, like, one place where you find that, like, neatly outlined, you know? But here we actually have a verse that says, look, here are the steps of faith, and it actually, in order, says, okay, step one, step two, step three, right? And one of the points that is being made here, if anyone does not have this faith, it is impossible to be justified before God, because we're saved by faith, right? So this faith, if this is not describing your faith, listen, if this is not describing your faith, you will not see God, period. This is an important chapter, right? And I think it's, it's missed what this is being said. And so the faith that we're going to look at isn't the faith of I just mentally acknowledge God and his existence and I acknowledge Jesus is Lord in my mind and therefore automatically I'm saved. We're not going to find that, right? And in fact, we're going to find that at, on a very simple level, that Acts 2.38, that this, if we follow this faith, it actually proves the need to follow God's promise toward salvation and baptism. But I want to suggest to you this chapter goes much farther than just the fundamental step of salvation, right? This is the faith that we always need to have at all times before God in our life. And if this will be the faith that we have, we'll be obedient and grow constantly in our faith with the right attitude. Mark, you something you want to say? I mean, I don't know, you can probably tell me that, but it's been, and that faith is one defined by, you know, gratitude. That's right. That's what we're going to find. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yep, because it, it cultivates a, a mentality and a heart condition, ultimately. I guess gratitude uh, with humility. Right, it binds, yeah, absolutely. Amen. Thank you so much. Good, great comment. All right, so I'm going to read 16 through 25, and what I'd like for you to do, see if you can find the steps of faith in this chapter. And what I mean is, like, if you're taking notes, like, right, maybe like right, a one, and then, like, what you see as a step of faith, and I'll, I'll tell you what I see in this chapter, and, and maybe there's openness to, like, 
see different parts of this as different steps, but I'm going to narrow it down to three for the sake of just neatness and like teaching a lesson. But that is what he's saying in verse 16 through 25. He's going to define the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. So verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. All right, so this is really exciting. I, I love talking about this, this, uh, this context. I think it's exciting because the qualities of faith here are so encouraging and it's so clear and it's, it's almost like surprising, right? Because the world does, and I think I do, we define faith in such a shallow way that when we see what faith really is, it's, it's actually quite astonishing to see what faith actually is as it's defined by God, Right? And so we can really let go of our own need to, to define faith and just allow God to define for us the faith that he's seeking. So the first quality of faith, I, 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 like I said, I've got my own like three things, but what did you see? What, what to you would be the first quality of Abraham's faith that you see in 16 through 25? What, what do you see? He allows God's promise to become his purpose. Yeah, perfect. Great. Anything else? That's great. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Yeah, so it, uh, are you talking about verse 16, that it may be in accordance with grace? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yep. So the first quality that, that I'll point out, and again, I think there's openness to see different things as, as actually being a part of the process of faith or the steps of faith. But verse 17 to me is the first one. And the, the way I've thought about this is, Abraham saw God, who God really is, as the first step of this faith. He comprehended God. And I think a way to, to think about this is when God had spoken, Abraham had meditated on the implications of God's promise in relation to himself, right? So look at verse 17. It says, In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, and there's two things he says about God there. Two things. What's the first quality of God he mentions there? Gives life, but how does he give life? That's not quite it. How does he give life? He gives life to the dead. That's very specific and purposeful. Look back in verse 5. We believe in him who justifies who? The ungodly. 
Abraham's faith was a type of the faith that would justify anybody for all time. God specifically chooses to give life to the dead. And he does something else. What's the second thing it says he does in verse 17? That's right. That's right. Right. And so I want to talk about the implications of these two qualities. Um, and I want to first look at the danger I think that Abraham did not fall into, that the Pharisees did. Go to John chapter 5. <clears throat> really, verse 37 through 47 in John 5. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through that, but just point out some things in these verses. John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who had a very strong conviction that God was real. The God of the Old Testament was real. They were serving that God. They knew the Old Testament probably better than anyone has ever known the Old Testament. I mean, from their youth, like when they were like seven years old or something, they would have the first five books of the Old Testament totally memorized. So, I mean, these guys, they, they had just nailed it as far as knowledge, right? But look at verse 37 through 38. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. So stop there. Um, You see in verse 37 what he says to them. He says, they have never heard his voice at any time. At any time. Just can you imagine how insulting that would seem to the Pharisees who, again, they had the Old Testament memorized, right? Even from their youth. And what Jesus is saying, there's not even one time in your life you've ever even heard the voice of God or even seen his form, right? And that's the danger is we can read scripture. We can be like close to God in a sense and in the community of God, but not even be hearing his voice or seeing his form the whole time. The Pharisees had never been humbled by who God really was. They never saw themselves, one, as dead people. Because God only gives life to the dead, right? God's not giving life to living people, and we're talking about spiritual, true, eternal life, right? So if I see myself as living, and if I see myself as okay, God has not chosen me then to be the one who he's going to give life to. And I'm going to have to see that what God is promising and what will bring me to be able to stand before him, of me does not exist. He is the one who in entirety is granting that which justifies me and brings me to stand in judgment. I'm going to show you a verse in uh, Luke chapter 11 related to this. It's very interesting. Look at Luke chapter 11. Jesus in this context is teaching his disciples about prayer. And he says some interesting things in, in this context related to prayer in Luke chapter 11, verse 5 through 13. He tells a story in, in five, through, 5 through 8 about a man who has a friend come at midnight. He doesn't have any food for him. 
And so he goes to his neighbor's house and knocks on his neighbor's door and says, I need, you know, loaves for my friend. And he says, no, it's too late. My children are already in bed. I can't give you anything. But then because of his persistence, he continues knocking and his friend gives him as much as he needs. Key thing in that story, key thing in that parable. When the friend came, he did not have at all any of what his friend needed, right? So he had to go somewhere else in order to find some. And the need was so great that he was going to continue seeking until he found it. 9 through uh, 13, pay close attention to what Jesus is teaching here now. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a really interesting ending to that story, isn't it? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Um, a lot of people, they insert and in, infer things into this passage that aren't there because they don't see nor know, nor, nor know God. They've never heard his voice at any time. And so when they read verse 9, they think things like, oh, if I ask God for this job over and over again, well, then he's obligating himself to give me this job. Or I want this vehicle or this car. And, you know, if I ask hard enough and long enough, God's going to give me this car because I've asked long enough about it, right? Through my persistence, God's like my genie who's going to, you know, grant me my wishes. But verse 13, I think, really qualifies this. What is God ultimately seeking to give his children in verse 13? The Holy Spirit, right? Um, If we understand this lesson, it'll really change the way we pray. Because what if I told you that everything, everything that brings God glory, everything that pleases him, you have absolutely no ability of yourself to accomplish that, even if by appearance it can seem like you do, right? That it's only by God's willingness to grant it. Here's a good way to think about this. In the Old Testament, when the prophets would talk to the people and when God would be kind of progressively pulling away from the nation because of their sin, what God would begin to eliminate, he would eliminate what was, what was needful for temple worship. He'd take away their wine and their oil and their animals. And so because of their lack of faith, he would take away their ability to worship him. Why? Because it was only by his grace in the first place that they could have those things to give him worship, right? And they needed to understand it's only because of his grace towards them, his mercy, that they can have a temple, that they can have what they needed to worship God, right? So if we really understand faith, it'll humble us to know that we are so reliant on God's mercy in every way. And the overconfidence of approaching God in a presumptuous way to think that anything of myself is sufficient does not originate from God, but from the devil, right? Anybody have any comments or questions on that before we move on to the next point in Romans 4? All right, well, let's keep, keep moving for the sake of time. So the next quality, I think, is verse 18 and 19 back in Romans 4. Um, so the first thing is Abraham saw God, and he saw God in a way defined by his word and promise. He had meditated on the implications of God's promise and, and what that really revealed about 
who God really is and, and what God really is seeking to do and what kind of person God is seeking to connect himself with. In verse 18, what's that first phrase about the way that Abraham believed in verse 18? What does it say in verse 18? Yeah, does anybody have any idea what that means to hope against hope? Does anybody want to take a shot at trying to define that? Maybe saying it doesn't make sense for him to have hope. That's right. Yeah. Right, exactly. What was what was contrary to hope in God's promise to Abraham here? What was like contradictory to hope? Yes. That's right, that's right. That's right. And God waited until the promise could take that form, right? And that's very important that God's promise exposes our weakness. And when God makes promises, the purpose of that promise is to help us realize how weak we are towards the fulfillment of his life-giving purpose, right? And so he thought about the implications of the promise. Well, he's how old at the time that this talks about? How old was Abraham? 100 years old. He is a really old man. I actually know a guy who's 101 uh, right now, and he's definitely not like at a child-giving phase of life, right? He's way, way past that. So he's 101 years old. So in relation to God's promise, it, it looks like, you know, he has no ability to fulfill this promise and doesn't seem like he can have any part in it. Um, but did Abraham, did Abraham weaken in faith because of the nature of God's promise? What, is it, what does it say in verse 19? How did he think about all of this? Yeah, right. That's right. Exactly. Right. That's so good. And that's so important because have you ever heard someone say, like, I, I hear, you know, about how God is so forgiving, but I'm too far gone. God, I can't imagine how he'll forgive me. Right. Or like, I know God has made these promises, but I'm so deep in this sin. I'm so deep in this sin. I just, and they might not verbally say this, but I just don't believe that I can stop this sin because this has been such a central part of my life for so long, right? God's promises, God's promises will bring us face to face with our own futility and weakness in ways that could potentially weaken our faith. You know, God's commands are actually purposely given to us to cultivate faith and reliance on him. Like, easy example, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, everything he teaches fundamentally, just the most fundamental teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, every single thing he teaches, when I even try to purposely obey it, I can get discouraged so fast when I realize how incapable I am of fulfilling the most basic commands that Jesus gave, right? Um, But what am I going to do? Do I, when I see how much of a struggle it is for me, when I see how, how little I understand how to do those things, when I, when I try to relationally fulfill those things and see that, like, I'm just not really accomplishing what I hoped I would as I begin to obey God, do I pull back and begin to be demotivated at my weakness? Or do I push forward being encouraged that God has committed himself to fulfilling his promise towards me if I will just humble myself and believe, 
right? God's commands will always bring a great struggle of having to overcome unbelief in my weakness in order to continue to obey him. Mark. Part of how he shows us that is he shows us all the failings of his, his great right. uh, faithful people in right. the Testament. I mean, every one of them Such a good point. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. He's, he's already shown us um, that it's not impossible no matter what we think. That's right. That's right. Yep. I think another aspect of this too, um, quickly, is I think a lot of false teachings come out of this place here in the wrong way. Like I've heard people say things like, well, we're always sinners. You know, we're always going to be sinning. You know what's interesting is in the New Testament, sin is acknowledged oftentimes in the lives of Christians in the New Testament. And in 1 John, it's interesting that in the beginning of 1 John, he acknowledges, if we say that we have no sin, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. But in that same book, he'll say we must not sin. It's like, how do we balance those things, right? Because the promise of God is to liberate us from sin. Not that we continue to be enslaved to sin, but here's the truth. We will always be weak. We will always be weak. It's just a matter of what we do with our weakness when we're faced with it. Will we pull back in unbelief when faced with weakness and say, well, you know, God understands. I'm just so weak, you know, and I just, you know, I, I, can't, I can't move forward, you know. And do we think God accepts the condition of our sin or do we push forward in faith and continue to seek God and his promises that he's able to fulfill the things he promised? So his faith was in God's person and ability. His faith was not in his own ability, but he still was able to acknowledge his weakness and he was able to even more fully acknowledge his weakness because of acknowledging God's faithfulness and ability towards his promise. So the third, uh, the third quality of faith here is verse 20 and 21. 20 and 21. In respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And what does it say in verse 21? Why did he grow strong in faith in verse 21? What does it say? Fully convinced. I love that. He, had, he was persuaded by God's promise. And he had to go through a thought process to become persuaded. And he was fully convinced in whose ability? God's ability. Very important. Our, our justification before God is based on whether or not we trust his ability to fulfill his promises. It's not based on my perfection. It's not based on being morally perfect. It's based on trusting God's ability to complete his promises in his own stated way. I think something important in this too is that he was convinced that God was going to fulfill every component of his promise in the way that was necessary for it to be fulfilled. And here's why I say that in that way. Was the promise given to Abraham the forgiveness of sins here? It wasn't. Now, God accounted his faith as righteousness, but the promise was that he would have a son, Isaac, right? Did Abraham believe that God's power was that Isaac was going to just kind of randomly, magically appear out of nowhere? It was going to be like, pooh, and then Isaac appears. Was that what he was trusting in? No, it wasn't. Abraham trusted that God was going to use his dead body to fulfill the promise of life. And not to get too graphic about this, but Abraham was 100 years old. 
And he had to believe that God was going to use the activity of him going into his wife to produce that child when there would be no other reason to do so or to believe that anything would come out of that, right? And so he believed he had a place in God's promise. So Abraham's trust was that God wasn't going to change the way he was making his promise. He wasn't going to just randomly cause this promise to be fulfilled. But the implication was that Abraham had a part in obedience toward this promise. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not that the promise was going to be fulfilled based on his obedience necessarily. It was based on God's ability, right? But God had chosen to bring the promise of life through the use of what was dead, not in the absence of the use of what is dead. I want to talk for a second about why this is important to understand in relation to what people tend to use this passage for. This actually proves that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins, and we don't need to go to James 2 to see that. Go to Acts 2.38. I want to show you something just quickly. Acts 2.38. And everyone, I'm sure, is pretty familiar with this passage, but day of Pentecost, first sermon is preached to people who had crucified Jesus, and they're convicted that they need to do something to escape God's wrath and be saved. Peter says to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what's the promise there? What's the promise? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And what else? Gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of your sins. But how was God choosing to fulfill that promise? By us repenting and being baptized. Right. Through the use of what was dead. That's such an essential cornerstone to faith in all the New Testament. That God chooses to work through what is dead, the use of what is dead, to bring life and promise, right? So if, if we're going to have the faith of Abraham, when we see God's command and word, it may contradict everything I've ever heard. It might contradict all the ideas that I've ever had. It may contradict what I think makes sense, what I think is ideal. doesn't matter. If I confess Jesus as Lord, then he's the king. His word has authority. And if I believe in in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I recognize only Jesus has the power of life and to give life. Only Jesus has the say-so of how God can work through death to bring life. So if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is the king, then my obligation is to obey his word. And if I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then he's the one with the life-giving power to bring life through death, right? Both of those passages point uh, toward baptism being necessary. Without the need to go anywhere else, we can simply prove it from the text. Um, But I think, again, an important thing to remember is God's promise to Abraham was not forgiveness of sins. It was a child. And his belief was that the child would come through the means God had specifically stated in the promise itself. And that's exactly how the promise was fulfilled. But as to conclude the, the study... I think another part of this that motivates obedience and how this cultivates gratitude and and thankfulness, the thoughtfulness in in this passage. How much thoughtfulness do you exercise toward God's promises and command? How much do you think about those things? And and how is that that changing your attitude toward God? And is, is it changing your perception of yourself? Are you continuously being humbled by the way that God has chosen to fulfill his promises And is your gratitude constantly growing as you realize that your justification is not based on your ability, 
But it's based on God's faithfulness and power to bring life even through the deadness of your sin and your life apart from him. Are you being drawn to God continuously knowing that he alone holds the power of life while we are responsible for death? And are are you encouraged to see that the outcome of God's promise to Abraham was not just that Isaac of himself was born, but that Isaac multiplied to become eventually even the nation of the kingdom of heaven, the church that exists today. And so we can find assurance that not only will God himself help us obey through his nearness and power, but the assurance is that as we obey God, that because it's by his ability and not by our own, that he will exceedingly and abundantly accomplish more than we can ever think or imagine according to the power that works within us to bring him glory in the church for all the ages forever and ever. Thank you for your attention and we'll move on to our next uh, assembly.